Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we're talking about how frustrated some progressives are with some of their more moderate fellow Democrats in Washington, from Joe Biden to Dianne Feinstein. And our guest is Yvette Simpson. She's the CEO of Democracy for America, one of the leading grassroots progressive organizations in America, and an ABC News contributor. Simpson, who is the first woman of color to lead the organization, also talks about the New York City mayor's race, where her organization has just endorsed a candidate. And now, here's my conversation with Yvette Simpson. Yvette Simpson, from your home in Cincinnati to mine in Oakland, California, welcome to It's All Political. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. I'm doing well. Busy time. You got a lot yeah, no doubt. About. Yes. Well, let's, let's start in Washington. I want to get your take on a couple of things going on there. Uh, Joe Biden won many progressive hearts when he uh, introduced his infrastructure bill. And this massive infrastructure bill included a lot of money for green energy programs and, and jobs, and it would, it would raise the corporate tax rate. And now we're stalled. And now a bipartisan group of senators have come together and they said, well, we've got a, we've got a different idea. There's no corporate income tax. Uh, we're not going to raise that. Uh, and it's, it's decidedly smaller. Uh, how, where are you uh, and where are progressives in terms of losing patience with uh, Joe Biden and his desire to be nonpartisan? I think we're we're right there. <laughs> I think we're like hitting the edge of patience. My grandmother used to say, "You're jumping on that last nerve <laughs> when you would just <laughs> take her so far." And I think I think here's why, right? So a lot of us never expected that Joe Biden's dream of bipartisanship was going to come true. How do we know? We've been watching them for the last 16 years. The way that they navigated with um, President Obama when he first came in, and of course the way that they've operated with the House in control and blocking bills uh, in the Senate when they had control of the Senate. So we had no wishful thinking that all of a sudden Joe Biden was going to go into the presidency and all his old friends from the Senate were going to say, well, if it's you, Joe, we'll work with you. Um, and so we, you know, we said, great ideal, but the reality is it's probably not going to happen. So when he invited the Republicans in, the Republican senators in to negotiate the COVID bill and they lowballed the offer, Progressives were like, okay, that was cute. You saw what they were going to do. Let's keep it moving. And unfortunately, Joe Biden continues to do this. And I think what's been hard with the infrastructure bill is he's literally negotiating against himself now. So what we're seeing happen is Republicans are not moving from their position, but Joe Biden keeps lowering his position. And so that means he's negotiating against himself. And what we know is even if he meets Republicans right where they are, they have no intention of passing that bill. They want to obstruct so that they have everything they need going into 2022 to say, see, Democrats are in control. They don't do anything. And then in 2024, right? So I think part of the frustration is we know we have the power if we just work within our own caucus to get these passed. We need to get it done. Like we need to deliver wins in order to have the momentum going into 2022. But do you have the power? What about what about the Joe Mansions of the world? Here's a guy who I don't know what leverage you'd have on him. He doesn't have for re-election until 2024. What do you do about the the mansions, the cinemas of the world? Well, and I think that's where Biden needs to focus his attention because you can't have bipartisanship if your own caucus isn't together, and that's his challenge. So Joe Joe Manchin, 
uh, is not ready for this kind of heat. I mean, I think he thinks he is, but he's not. You know, Joe Manchin wins on the backs of union workers and white working class workers in West Virginia who arguably have not been organized in a long time, meaning they have not been engaged. No one's come to them and said, hey, what has Joe Manchin done for you lately? When you see the polling that's coming out of West Virginia and the numbers about how West Virginians are struggling, they need to know that their representative is keeping them from getting needed help. And so I think that's the, is, no one's ever touched your mansion and this has to be the time. So you're seeing kind of the weight stack, stack up against him. You're seeing, you know, civil rights leaders, you're starting to see unions, you're starting to see progressive organizations like ours, applying pressure, talking and organizing uh, white uh, and black working class West Virginians to stand up against Joe Manchin. I think at the end of the day, it doesn't reflect well when the most powerful man in the world, arguably, can't get one member of his caucus to move. And I don't know that he's really tried. I mean, there's been some real question about how much time Joe uh, Biden has spent with Joe Manchin, letting him know what's at stake. So between Chuck Schumer, between Vice President Harris and Biden, if you can't get move, Joe Manchin movement moving, then we're done, right? Our caucuses, we can't get anything done, right? So we really, really need to focus on particularly Joe Manchin because I think he's been the most obstructionist. And I think what this shows is that he's got very little respect for the party. I don't think he has a lot of respect for Joe Biden because he obviously isn't, he considers himself the new leader and isn't respecting what Joe Biden and the Biden administration is trying to do. He doesn't seem to respect his constituents very much. And so I think the one person he seems to respect more than anything right now is Mitch McConnell, because he's being used as a tool by Mitch McConnell and continues to do that, even though it's against his best interests. So what, do you, what is DFA specifically going to do about uh, Joe Manchin? Are you, are you planning any uh, uh, campaigns against him? Are you joining with others in campaigns against him? You alluded that, to that a second ago. What, what's in action against Manchin right now? It's both and. So we've been in the process of uh, organizing our own membership there. We have about 2,000 active members across the state of West Virginia. It doesn't sound like a lot, but when you think about the people power that those individuals bring to organizing people, uh, we've got partnerships with other progressive organizations, Our Revolution, um, People's Action, Working Families Party, all doing the work. And we're partnering with them on the ground to organize actions um, by working people in West Virginia. Um, on Mansion, uh, of course, we're pressuring uh, the Biden administration through all of our contacts. We've been talking to our progressive senators, talking to our progressive members of the House, uh, talking about how we need to work together to make sure that Mansion knows uh, where he needs to be, and that Joe Biden makes that the number one priority. Um, and you heard kind of the press over the weekend, kind of talking about, okay, Joe Biden, have you really sat down and talked to Joe Manchin yet? Have you really? And he needs to make that a priority. Because unfortunately, great things coming out of the COVID response. The bill got done fast. Vaccine work uh, seems to be going really well. We're getting most of the country vaccinated. But you can't ride the COVID wave into 2022. You've mm -hmm. got to be able to keep real promises to Americans who came out in the middle of a pandemic. They were told that if the Democrats got control, that things would change. And you have to deliver on those promises. And you can't let a parliamentarian you can't let Mitch McConnell, you can't let Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema get in the way of that. Because what that means is that when we go back to those voters and we're constantly talking to them and we say, we need you to show up, they're going to say, well, why should I? I showed up last time and nothing changed. They're blaming everything on Joe Manchin. Who is it going to be next time? And so I think that's challenging. And I also just want to say, you know, kind of to step back, you know, I think 
this effort that Biden is doing to try to show bipartisanship and allowing Republicans to really use him in this way, I think it weighs against his credibility as a leader. You know, you don't have to be Donald Trump. You don't have to be evil, awful, uh, ugly, difficult, but you do need to show that you're powerful if you're leading the most powerful office, arguably, in the world. And if he can't get Republicans to move, if he doesn't get Joe Manchin to move, eventually people are going to lose credibility. They're going to say, is he the leader that we expected? And he was elected because people thought, well, he's had the longest amount of time in that body. He's respected by that body. He's our safe choice. He's got the experience. But then it's already been more than it's been more than six months now. And what has he been able to show in the in the area of bipartisanship and even in keeping his own caucus together? Let's talk about another uh, uh, Democratic senator who is not up for reelection until 2024. Bringing it back to California, Dianne Feinstein, Senator Dianne Feinstein. She was asked the other day about the filibuster in context of uh, new new voting rights uh, legislation called the For the People Act that would counter, for people who are not familiar with it, a lot of the voter suppression uh, legislation that's going on in states across the country right now. Uh, she was asked by Forbes, Forbes magazine uh, recently if she thought that the democracy was in jeopardy. And Feinstein said, if democracy were in jeopardy, I would want to protect it. But I don't see it being in jeopardy right now. Uh, she wants to say she wants to wait and see what happens with the For, For the People Act. Uh, and, and, and right now she she's not uh, clear, at least according to this, her conversation with Forbes recently, about uh, what she would support. What are you going to do about Dianne Feinstein? Is there going to be, a, I remember I wrote a column a couple months ago about a number of progressive groups that were lining up to uh, to put some heat on Feinstein. I know that she is, uh, gets a lot of respect as a, as, a, as a pioneer in the party, but uh, a lot of progressive groups had, uh, uh, had had enough a couple months ago. Then coincidentally, a couple of days later, she came back and sort of, sort of softened her position on the filibuster, her opposition to it. What do you think about her now and what are you going to do about it? You know, first of all, I just want to say Democrats are not all created equal. <laughs> this is this whole thing where <laughs> we think, if, you yes. know, like, well, let's just get all the Democrats together and we'll get something done. And I will tell you, um, my co- colleague, Chris Christie on ABC would say Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line. And I and I thought that was, I was such a crass reading of, you know, uh, the way politics are supposed to go. But I'm getting frustrated right now because you don't see Democrats really falling in line over issues that are foundational to our party. I mean, voting rights is foundational to our party, protecting working class people, foundational. And you've got people taking left and right. And I think that illustrates the point that I made about how Chuck Schumer, how uh, Kamala Harris and how Joe Biden are going to handle this caucus and really get everybody on board, which is Number one, now I lost a bit of love for Dianne Feinstein during the uh, Amy Coney Barrett uh, nomination. And you might remember that, I mean, she was like, that was the hug of death, right? When when she, you know, decided to coddle members of the of the Senate at a time when they were they were literally trying to use their own rules, violating their own rules to quickly seat the woman who is the antithesis of, of the great Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so I lost love for her then. And my my opinion is this. You know, Democracy for America stands for fight everywhere, win everywhere. You can win anywhere if you organize the people. We've got more people. They've got more money, arguably. But if you organize people, we can win. And she's a good example of someone who has been in that seat too long, who feels really, really safe, 
is likely very compromised, not unlike uh, Joe Manchin by money and politics and, and where her money comes from. And I think she's just kind of old school in the way that she thinks about how this is supposed to go, because these are her friends. But at the end of the day, when they were in control, they were not your friends. Republicans never talk about bipartisanship when they're in control, ever. They just want to get it done and they will move hell or high water. They will uh, they will change their rules, violate their rules, make new rules in order to get their agenda passed. And then Democrats, for some reason, when we get in control, we get a little bit more shy. And I think it's all of those things together. I think you've got some politicians who who have never really been dedicated or tested on core Democratic principles. They've been there long and they're under the pressure of and the weight of money and politics. And I think she needs to be primaried. Uh, we will be trying to identify someone to primary her. Um, she needs to resign. And I think there was some question about whether she would, particularly after the Amy Coney Barrett um, debacle, I'll say. There was a lot of uh, pressure on her and there was uh, questions about how, how long she would actually stay, whether she would run again. Well, she's, she's, that, she's, up, she's not up again until 2024. That's the thing. You're going to have to wait a while to primary her. What do you yeah. what, what do you do in the interim, if anything? Well, I mean, our strategy in 2022 with all of the folks who get another term is really to get as many new senators in to minimize their impact. Right. So if we can get more Democratic senators and increase our majority. Now you're taking away the crownship or the power of a mansion, a cinema, a, you know, a fine steed. So if we add more and I think we add more progressive uh Democratic center, senators who we know are going to be true to these core principles and are not going to be afraid to challenge whoever, big money, the status quo, Mitch McConnell, uh, whatever, uh, Donald Trump and Trumpism, because they're going to be uh, dedicated to the core values. So really, we hope to, to bring in four, five, six more senators, increase the majority in the Senate so that their voices, these dissenters, are, are, are not as important. They're not as critical. And then when they're not as critical, then you don't see them posturing in this way. You don't see them, you know, trying to be the, the kingmaker or the queenmaker. I think that's when in 2024, uh, we can unseat these people with new people. And it, it really does take that kind of time. I mean, I tell candidates all the time and anyone who will listen organizationally, you know, DFA has been at this for 17 years. We've helped elect over a thousand people in that time. We've learned a few things. And I think these statewide races, you've got to start sooner. So if you're already organizing, and California is a big state, so that's that part. But you know, if you're already if you're already organizing working class West Virginians now to challenge Mansion, you're working that muscle. You're getting these people out. When it comes time for his seat, he's either going to be accountable or he's going to be out. And so the work the the work that we do around organizing has to be multi cycle. And to, and that was the challenge that we had. I think I don't know if you sure you talk a lot um, last cycle about the failures and what happened. Uh, during the Senate races last cycle, where we had all of these candidates, a lot of money, very little organizing, very little messaging about what they were going to do. And we lost most of those seats. In fact, we were hanging on a thread by the two last seats in Georgia because so many of those seats lost. And I think hopefully what we learned from that is start earlier, organize people, be intentional, and don't wait to the last minute to try to unseat incumbents who are ingrained in the minds of people across the state and they have no reason they don't have enough time, enough energy to be able to study why they should split their vote. And I think we just need to take that time. So DFA is already in the process now of organizing in key states now for these very, very important races that will take place uh, four years from now. We'll have more of my conversation with Yvette Simpson after this short break. 
And now, here's more of my conversation with Yvette Simpson. I want to talk to you a little bit about the New York City mayor's race, which is uh, they're going to be going to the polls in uh, about a week or so after we record this uh, for the primary. You, as in Democracy for America, just endorsed Maya Wiley. Uh, she was a former top aide to uh, Mayor de Blasio. Uh, and, many, and many people who may not be familiar with her uh, might know her as a contributor to MSNBC. But she's never held elective office before, nor, nor is Andrew Yang, for that matter. Uh, why back someone for the second toughest job in America that, that's never held elective office before? You know, a, a couple of things. One, we supported Maya Wiley from the beginning. So that's important to know. And we're really excited about all the momentum that has come over the course of time with her race. You know, she doesn't, she's not new to, to city politics. I mean, she did work in the civil rights division um, under de Blasio. She knows her way around. I think New York City is a unique city in that the real thing you need in New York City, the largest city arguably in our country, you need someone who's willing to, to change, someone who's powerful and strong. Because right now in cities like New York City that are really large, the police union runs the city, the business community runs the city. Um, you see a lot of corporate interests and developers running major cities like this. And what happens is you have a huge stratification of rich and poor, uh, homeless versus housed, wealthy versus working family in cities like New York City. And we knew that New York City right now needed a fighter. New York needs a fighter because the reality is you need someone who's willing to go up against any interest to protect the people of New York and grow that city in a way that's inclusive. Because New York's real challenges aren't that, you know, everybody knows New York City is New York City, right? The city that doesn't sleep. Everybody loves New York City, the Big Apple. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of people in New York who are suffering. And the inequality that we see in a lot of cities is even more stratified in a place like New York. And so Maya Wiley believes in that. She knows that she's going to be a voice for real people. I think she's going to be really, really strong in making sure that she's representing the interests that are important to the progressives, which is, you know, regular everyday people. And I think she's going to be able to build a team around her that's going to make sure everything that needs to be done is going to get done. And she's going to be the leader to direct that. So I think it's very, very important to realize that she's smart. She's that, you know, she's, she's uh, got the kind of experience in the city that you need just enough, but she's not overtaken by public interest, by private interest. She's not overtaken by moneyed interest. She's not overtaken by some of these big, you know, the police union, some of these other organizations that are really keeping New York from dealing with the ills uh, that have plagued the city for so long. So we're excited about having a new kind of leader because, you know, you've seen several of these, uh, you know, de Blasio is often buckled under the weight of the police union. And you've seen what's happened, the police brutality rising in New York. I think she's going to counter that. The educational system is near and dear to her heart. Uh, you got a lot of babies in New York not getting best quality education. And then, of course, the housing crisis, uh, which is a big issue. I think she's going to make sure that that happens. That's why we supported her. One of the issues that's coming up in New York that's very likely to come up uh, in other races in the midterms uh, is that we've seen during the during the pandemic and and as we're heading out of it now, uh, hopefully, uh, the uh, increase in crime rates in, in yeah. certain cities across the country. How do Democrats and progressives uh, talk about that? Um, and uh, you know, we saw some recent poll, uh, recent studies that showed how effective Republicans were in using the defund the police uh, uh, rhetoric. <laughs> 
very few uh, if, 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 if Democrats want to zero out the police budget, but many do want to reallocate uh, resources used for public safety in different ways. How would you advise those Democrats to talk about it in a different way? You know, we've been pretty clear because DFA has been at this for a while. And we've helped a lot of local candidates navigate this water. It's not the easiest thing, right? Because when you think about it, when people think about public safety, they think about police. But the real, the reality is, is you can't police your way out of crime. You can have a police officer on every corner and crime will happen between those two corners. There's no way. You can add a thousand more police officers and you're still going to have crime. And what a lot of police agencies want is they want very little accountability and more money. But what other business works that way? What other business can you actively kill your own client and you get more money? So let's be clear. The, the banking the industry, I think, is be one. That might be <laughs> but one. But if, a, but, if a, but if a doctor or a pilot, like you know, Chris Rock said, if a, if a pilot runs a plane into you know a mountain, nobody's like, oh, we got a couple bad apples, right? Like you got a problem. Um, so the reality is, is that I love that from Chris Rock. It's hilarious. Yes, um, it is good, yeah. but, but it does, it does talk about that. There are some professions where you just need really, really good folks who are doing the work and they see proactive policing as more, um, as, as stop and frisk as profiling and racial profiling. And what we know is that crime starts far beyond when that crime occurs. And so what we've got a lot of amazing, uh, leaders, whether they're criminal justice fighters from mayors talking about is how we deal with, you know, violence as a public health issue. The fact that we really need to put more resources in places that prevent crime instead of trying to chase crime after it's already happened. And so the hard part about that is if you live in the suburbs, if you you call the police, they show up. They're not actively pulling you over while you're walking down by the park in your tree-lined street and saying, hey, what you got in your pockets? Like they do in urban urban communities. So you think of the police as those folks who are like, they're the good people. They're the good guys. They're going to call. Yes. No. They're friendly. Right. So I say, you know, start policing suburbs like you police urban environments and suburban voters might feel a little differently. And people in urban environments want to be policed the same way. We want to be, you know, we want you to be looking proactively. We want to have the resources we need so our folks can, can go up. But we don't want racial profiling. We don't want people to be um, treated unfairly, police brutality on folks who don't deserve it. That's not a way to prevent or stop crime. And so we've just got to flip that message. I think, you know, the Democrats are notoriously bad at messaging. It's really, really bad. Uh, it's something that we really need to work on. I think the Lincoln Project really showed us how much better the Republican Party tends to be at messaging because you even had Democrats like supporting the Lincoln Project messaging. We need our own Lincoln Project. Um, just call something <laughs> else. Um, so we're horrible at messaging, but I, the message should be this. Public safety should be for everyone. Meaning if I if the, I call the police, they should show up and I should not be in danger of being frisked, killed, uh, maimed, tased, right? And we need to have more um, supports for the things that prevent crime, giving people resources and not being over-policed. And so I think that's the challenge. And, and, and they are, they're stoking fear in people and a lot of white fear and a lot of white suburban fear and saying, well, if there are fewer police officers, we're going to be less safe. And the reality right. is, is you got a ton of police officers and you're still not safe. <laughs> so you got to deal with root causes. You got to deal with root causes is the punchline there. I want to talk to you uh, about you for a little bit. Uh, you're the first woman of color to head Democracy uh, for America, which is one of the nation's leading progressive institutions. And uh, I've heard people say for years that there is that there is a disconnect uh, sometimes between the larger progressive community and Black Americans. Yeah. Why is that? What, 
what do you think and what are you guys doing about it? Well, thank you for that. I'm the first woman ever to lead, by the way, black or first woman or okay. other. first yeah. black woman. Uh, okay. Yeah. First woman of any color. Um, but I do think, I think what you're seeing happen now is African-American leaders are taking over or being asked to lead traditional white progressive organizations. So the year I came in, move on, uh, they, they have an African-American female leader, Working Families Party brought in Mo Mitchell, uh, you know, Nina Turner was early the year before with our revolution. So you've got African-American leaders now leading traditionally white progressive organizations. And what we say is that, like, there is no white progressive versus black progressive. Like, there's progressive. And there are a lot of black progressives. In fact, um, the root, I think, of progressive messaging is black. Like, most people didn't know that Martin Luther King was a progressive. I mean, he was, he was based on all the things that he stood for, was probably closer to democratic socialists than traditional progressive, super progressive. And that's because what the progressive party is about, the progressive movement is about, is about making sure we're taking care of everyone. And I think that's a message that's really important. What I'm doing as the leader of DFA is reminding us, if we don't deal with the inequalities that naturally exist, if we don't protect everybody, then we're not doing our job. And that starts with focusing on black and brown people. Because as they say, you know, when the world gets a cold, black people get pneumonia. And that's because everything that affects regular people because of racism, systematic racism, uh, you know, our, our white supremacy and, and what our country was founded on, the inequalities against black and brown people make it harder. You saw that during the pandemic, right? You know, black folks were mm -hmm, more likely mm -hmm. to lose their businesses, to lose their job, to get sick, to die from this pandemic. And Absolutely. so what we have to do as a progressive movement is be inclusive. And so racial justice has to be a foundation of our work. We have to, we have to challenge ourselves in the ways that is a movement that we forget that message. And so I'm always here reminding white progressive uh, organizations and white progressive leaders that we need to make sure that we're listening to Black organizers, Black leaders, listening to the Black community, because those needs are, are pervasive. You know, we're celebrating Pride this month, and people forget that Pride started with Black transgender um, protest. And, uh, and so every, almost every major movement, I was, I was talking about uh, white uh, um, women's suffrage, and someone asked me to do a talk about women's suffrage, and I was like, conveniently wrote out the role that Black women played to get white women to write the vote only to not get the vote for another 40 years. Um, so I think that's important. And I think the progressive movement needs to be there. I think the problem is, is that, you know, even our organization was founded in Burlington, Vermont, arguably not the most diverse city <laughs> in the world. Um, no, no, it is not. Also, I mean, it's an amazing city. <laughs> they have tall and short people there, short, tall and short white people there. You know, it's all about height diversity. We need to talk about that more. You know, we need to, under, height we discrimination is a real thing. It's a real thing. I happen yes. to be somebody that is a little short as well. So I feel like I am, I'm with you. I'm with you on that, uh, on that count. So anyway, I think that's the thing is like not, not real, realizing that those are, those movements are combined and we just need to work more together. And I'm loving what I'm seeing, frankly. I mean, I'm loving the focus. You're seeing changes. On, I am. I think. I think part of it is we had to get to a place where we just started to see that we were fighting for the same thing and that and that we had to start talking to our own white colleagues about decentering themselves, about elevating the voices of black and brown people, letting black people and brown people lead. And you saw that with George Floyd and all the things that happened around Black Lives Matter and, you know, making sure that black organizers are, are given the freedom to be able to lead and for white progressives to be allies and to stand in the gap. 
And so I think it's I think it's going very, very well. And I think going forward, you're going to see more and more of that. You know, organizations like Latasha Brown, Latasha Brown's organization is a progressive organization. They've always been a part of the progressive movement. She runs Black Black Voters Matter. Uh, and so we we've always had, I think, this um, this, uh, you know, understanding that black and brown people have been naturally progressive for a lot of reasons. But then when the organization started to form, they looked more white. We just got to merge the movement. And one last thing I want to ask you was um, uh, Barbara Lee has uh, uh, said on this podcast a couple of different times. We've talked mm-hmm. about the challenges of uh, black women running for office to mm-hmm. raise money. Uh, and here, and this is Barbara Lee saying this, a national progressive icon. And uh, yeah. even though she largely doesn't uh, face a lot of uh, challenges or serious challenges when she's running for her seat here in Oakland, East Bay, uh, she still feels that. She said she has to work. It's almost like three times as hard. What are you doing, uh, if anything, to to help uh, a black women when they are running for office? Thank you for that question. And Barbara Lee is a queen. So love her very much. <laughs> um, <laughs> all things Barbara make me happy. Um, so, uh, you know, the first thing is we've got to start early, you know, and it, and part of it is because it just takes so much longer, particularly for statewide. If we're talking about Senate races and DFA uh, is going to probably support three black women uh, and several black men for Senate next cycle. So you'll see you'll see that happen. One, it just it just takes longer. You got to build the right team. You got to build it early. You know, you know the you know the five M's of, of winning campaigns: is money, message, manpower, and woman power. And alliteration works better with man. Um, metrics and media. And so I think it's one of those things where with with black female candidates, you have to have, start early, and you have to have all of that done. I think the fact that um, black women don't get as much support is twofold. You know, one, this idea of electability, which is a construct that is based in whiteness and based in the patriarchy or maleness yes. is a challenge. And it I've said it last stud proven, proven to be bullshit, to be stone cold bu- bullshit. And as we've discussed on this podcast. Yes. I like yeah, the yes. Thank you for covering that. Cause I don't think people understand that. And I'm like, when white men lose, y'all don't say he, he wasn't electable. Um, right. <laughs> like, Even though often they are. <laughs> right, there you go. So, uh, so one, we got to challenge that. And we know that they confront racism from traditional donors, um, from, you know, organizations. And so we try to get in these races very early to show that they have some national support behind them. And we try to build support around them. So we do all the things. We help raise money. We raise awareness. We build power for them. We do all that stuff. We got to do all that early. But then you confront the other side, which we don't talk a lot about, what racialized and gender oppression does for Black female candidates. Now, you remember that more white women supported Donald Trump than supported Hillary Clinton. And you think about the fact that there are still women who don't believe that women can win and they don't want to support women because they're afraid women can't win. And then there are black people who, you know, Barack Obama. Black people loved Barack Obama, but they were kind of side eyeing him until they won Iowa. And then they were like, oh, wait a minute, maybe he can win. And they were jumping ship from the Clinton camp. (laughs) Like, maybe he can win. And I think that's all oppression. It's wanting to be with the winning team and not actually believing that the person that reflects your own lived experiences can win as an acknowledgement of the fact that we have racism in this country. Um, And so it all goes back to that. So what we do is we endorse early. So this summer we'll roll out quite a few women. We will surround them with as much support, fundraising support, organizing support, messaging support. We will be their team uh, and we will build power around them. 
And then we've got to fight within our own party, which is my favorite job. I love that job. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Speaking truth to power is my love language, Joe. Um, I love going to our own party and saying, you need to do better. You need to support these women. When Stacey Abrams ran for governor, she was challenged by her own party with a woman named Stacey Evans. A white woman named Stacey Evans was supported by the party against Stacey Abrams. And clearly Stacey Abrams won that race overwhelmingly. And then they everybody jumped on the bandwagon when she got into our general. What we're saying to our own party is trust Black women, support Black women early. And if we do that, we're going to be great. You're starting to see that happen with Val Demings. I'm feeling good about that. I think part of that is because she's kind of a, a Democratic establishment queen and everybody loves her. But we need mm. to do that all the time. We need to believe in Black women and we need to support them. And so if we can do that early. If we can raise more money, raise more people, organize harder, uh, we can win these races. Because what we know is that Black women, when they are in leadership, they reflect everybody. They really do lift up all communities. And I think that's a part of otherism. That's a part of being discriminated against. And so we can we can build that. And we just got to fight against our own, our own party and against ourselves to really start to believe that Black women can win and give them all the support they need. All right. Yvette, thank you so much for being on It's All Political. I, so we will have fun. to talk uh, talk down the road when we get into these races a little bit more and, and, and see where we're at. Let's do it. Happy to do it. Thanks so much for having me. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Yvette for joining us today. I'd like to thank the King Webby Award winning producer, King Kaufman, for editing today's episode. And a shout out to the theme music you're hearing. That song is called Cattle Call, and it's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. And remember, no matter whether you're frustrated with Washington or think things there are just peachy, it's all political.